guys. On the podcast today, we have Michael Hurd. He is a native of Houston. He's a writer and historian, uh, currently serving as director of Prairie View A&M University's Texas Institute for Preservation of History and Culture, which is digitally documenting 500 years of black history in Texas. Michael is an Air Force and Vietnam veteran. He's a recipient of the Air Force Commendation Medal and a graduate in the journalism department of the University of Texas at Austin. He has worked as a sports writer at the Houston Post, the Austin American Statesman, USA Today, and Yahoo Sports. Michael has authored three books, including his most recent, which we discuss on this podcast, Thursday Night Lights, the story of black high school football in Texas. He serves on the selection committee for the Black College Football Hall of Fame, is a board member for the Writers League of Texas, and a member of the Texas Institute of Letters. This was one of the most fulfilling podcasts that we have done. I finished Michael's book late in 2018 and have been wanting to have him on the podcast ever since. Thursday Night Lights tells the story of black high school football during segregation, which for context's sake in Texas was prior to 1967. The reason Michael felt compelled to author this book, which required several years of research, uh, face-to-face and phone interviews, digging through small newspaper snippets, and a ton more work, is because he realized that once integration occurred, the stories, the trophies, the banners, the statistics, the championship acknowledgements, and even the physical schools, most of them, were gone. And this was his opportunity as a person who lived during that time, who is now a sports journalist, an author, and a cultural historian, to catalog that period in history, to crystallize it, to capture it, and in his words, reintroduce it to generations that have been long removed from that time. So before we get to the conversation with Michael, if you would please rate this podcast, review it, and share it with your pals and buddies on social media. That helps us grow, that helps us reach more listeners, and that helps our guests like Michael reach a larger audience as well so he can have more readers of his book and all the great things that he is doing and all the great things that our other guests are doing. More people can learn about them and just continue to spread that goodness. So without further ado, Please enjoy our conversation with Michael Hurd. Welcome to the Everson Cooper podcast. We are entrepreneurs that are interested in what makes people successful. In this podcast, we sit down with a wide range of people with diverse perspectives and backgrounds. We dive into the obstacles that they've had to overcome, their successes, unique experiences, and everything in between. Our goal is to continuously learn from those around us and share their knowledge so that we can all find something that makes us better and makes those around us better. We hope you enjoy. Michael, thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you, Andy. I appreciate your, uh, your having me on. All right. I am really excited to have you. Um, you are, you, you recently wrote the book, Thursday Night Lights. Mm-hmm. And for those of you, for those listeners that think of Thursday Night Lights, oh my gosh, is this some ripoff of Friday Night Lights? Absolutely not. No, there's whole context, whole historic significance behind the term Thursday Night Lights. And you talk about that in mm-hmm. the book. Effectively, Thursday Night Lights, and this is straight from the book, and, and so it says, identifies a defining reality of high school football games played in racially charged time when even the midweek scheduling of games for black teams carried a less than feel. Mm-hmm. 
So effectively what that means is Thursday Night Lights is the story of uh, segregated uh, high school football teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason it's called Thursday Night Lights is because they weren't basically weren't allowed to play on Friday nights or weren't allowed to play on Saturday nights. Yeah, well, and it's not so much that they weren't allowed because some of the um, some of the black high schools, very few of them, had their own stadiums. Um, I mean, just a little small, you know, couple hundred seat bleachers sure. or whatever. But they would play on uh, Fridays and Saturday nights. Now the setup. Uh, was because the uh, the University Interscholastic League, you know, came along and, you know, they, they already had Friday nights pinned in. And, and if you think about it, looking around the state, just about every, all of the big, big towns and cities uh, had a public school stadium. And, of course, they had a, a black school and a white school. And so uh, the white schools had already locked were locked in to do their Friday night, uh, their Friday night thing, and then when the black high schools started to field programs and in, in, in those towns and come along, and they were relegated to um, to a Wednesday and Thursday nights and sometimes other nights yeah. uh, in in the week, so you know they didn't have access to that public school stadium on Friday and Saturday nights for the most parts unless they had their own stadiums, you know, and again very few of those teams did. But it did carry out, you know, Friday night was prime time, mm-hmm. you know, Friday and Saturday nights and, and all of that. And it, having to play your games on Wednesdays and Thursday nights on a school night, yeah. you know, so to speak, and all of that. It really did carry a less than feeling, yeah. you know, for the black high schools around the state. And there's uh, one, and you can certainly elaborate more on this. Um, and I know that I have this in my notes, but <clears throat> there's one of the one of the guys that you were doing uh, an interview with. And he said, you know, when, when he was, you know, whenever he was in high school, um, he basically was like, I didn't even know they had games on Friday nights. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Jefferson Stadium in Houston was in Third Ward, which was this cultural mecca for African-Americans uh, back in the day. And, uh, you know, Jefferson Stadium was about a block from Jack Yates High School, which was this, this powerhouse yeah. uh, black high school, uh, not only in Houston, but around the state. And, you know, some, I mean, they knew about some of the, some of the teams that would play, the white schools that played on Friday and Saturday nights, because stadiums right across the street from mm-hmm. them, right in their neighborhood, so they would go over there sometimes. But a lot of guys uh, really didn't have a sense of, uh, <laughs> you know, what was going on on Friday nights at Jefferson Stadium yeah. and Saturday nights, you know, guys who were not living in Third Ward or not living in Houston, you know. It, a lot of those guys, I, I don't think, really followed, you know, the white high schools that much, mm-hmm. you know, because of this separation, you know, for the most part. You know, it's like maybe you heard about some of those players mm-hmm. and, and, and some of those teams, but I don't think there was a real following, yeah. you know. So, yeah, so Friday night, you know, that, that, that kind of didn't exist. And the first time that I heard the term Friday Night Lights, you know, I, I, it, it gave me pause. I'm like, what the heck is Friday Night Lights? <laughs> you know, I thought maybe it was a Broadway play or something. Sure. And because when I went to, you know, going to Worthing High School back in the 60s, that's when our, our games were played on, Wednesday, on Wednesdays and Thursday nights. And so that's, you know, obviously that's where the title comes from. But no, I, I didn't. The Friday night lights thing never really resonated with me. So, for for our listeners to, <clears throat> as best as you can, and just very quickly, and, and we're going to dig more into into mm-hmm. the book, and I think it definitely deserves that. It's an amazing book. Um, in a nutshell, 
the the book as a whole what was your what was your purpose for for writing the book well you know and i i think i say in in the introduction or or somewhere in the mm-hmm. book that you know this was uh, i mean this was my story yeah. in a lot of ways yeah. you know because i grew up with a lot of those guys who were playing then, some of my classmates, mm-hmm. you know, the games that I went to, these were the, the teams that I that I watched and play. And, uh, you know, this was my high school football experience growing up and, and cheering for, for schools in the Peruvian Scholastic League. You know, so I knew about that. And I knew about all these incredible players that came out of there. I knew about all these incredible coaches that, that uh, nurtured and, 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 and mentored, you know, those players and, and built these wonderful programs, championship programs. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I knew. And as I grew and I started my career as a sports writer, you know, I would still, you know, when I covered games, I would look at, you know, some of the college games and I would look at the roster and see where some of these guys were from. Say, oh, well, this guy's from Kashmir, you know, mm-hmm. or this guy's from Worthing or this guy's from Yates, you know, just... Uh, making that connection between uh, the players and the schools beyond uh, their high school experience. But I, I knew those stories, and it really, in a lot of ways, it never dawned on me that nobody had ever written about those mm-hmm. guys. You know, I didn't really give it that much thought until it was probably around 19, uh, 2007. I uh, was in, living in Austin. And a group called the Prairie View Scholastic League Coaches Association. Every year, they honor and recognize former PVIL players and coaches, and with a Hall of Fame banquet. And so I went one year in Austin around 2007, and it's like, wait, I I know that guy, or I've heard about that guy. You know, I know that player. You know, and I just started talking with those guys, and it was just such, excuse me, such a moving experience for them to get up, you know, and they have a, a couple of minutes to, to to get up and speak and, you know, thank their God or, or, or uh, uh, their families and friends and, and teammates and coaches. And it's, it's such a family reunion and almost a sacred honor because for so many of those guys, nobody had ever asked them to yeah. tell their stories. Yeah. You know, in terms of mainstream media and newspaper, because mainstream uh, newspapers didn't cover them, really cover those guys in the first place. So, you know, just hearing about, hearing all those stories and meeting those guys, and and the more I listened and the more I went to, because I started going to that 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 uh, banquet every every year, and it just kind of dawned. I said, like, I wonder if anybody has ever really done this book because yeah. these are all, all these great stories and of course nobody had you know there's been some mention of the pvil and some other books but it's usually only like a paragraph maybe a page or two mm-hmm. but nothing really in depth and there was a coach named walter day who coached at a uh, corsicana high school uh up near uh, up near dallas uh won a won a couple of state championships pvil and when he retired coach day Made his made a quest out of going around the state and talking uh, to 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 other, the coaches and players and going to libraries and 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 making clips of of the uh, coverage for the schools at least in the championship uh, stages, mm-hmm. and he put together a book uh, called "Remembering the Past with Pride," just talking about those programs, and so 
I had a chance to meet Coach Day, and I told him, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this book. You know, I know about your research and anything you can do to help me out. I mean, that sort of thing. And he could not have been more excited because, you know, he knew, you know, that that stuff had never really been recorded, yeah. you know, um, and, uh, you know, for mainstream audiences. And so I guess my motivation, to, to get back to your question, <laughs> my, my motivation for writing this book was to tell those stories and, and to give those guys some very long overdue exposure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because I had covered, uh, as a sports writer at USA Today, uh, well, I'm sorry, at the Houston Post, my first beat, that was my first uh, sports writing job, and my first beat was covering the Southwestern Athletic Conference, mm -hmm. the SWAC, you know, which is the black colleges. Yeah, yeah. And so many of the uh, uh, players from black high schools uh, played college ball at black colleges, yeah. and so there was this kind of symbiotic relationship. And so I was aware of all of that. But the fact, the fact that these guys had never really had an opportunity to tell their stories, you know, I, I, I thought... That was really important for me, and, and it was an honor to, to talk with them and to, to bring that league to light. To light. And I, I say in the book that the book is meant to both introduce and remember the mm -hmm. Prairie Viennese Scholastic League, and yeah. I think that's, that's what I did. I think that's, that's a very true statement. Mm -hmm. um, for, for me, I graduated a history major, uh, taught here in the state of Texas, here locally in Conroe ISD, uh, taught you know U.S. history, coached football, uh, and to say that you know you're remembering it, but you're also introducing it uh, is very true because it really was an introduction to me. Um, mm -hmm. That's I, I I had no context, not much context. Uh, obviously, I, I do have the understanding. I know the history behind historically black universities and colleges, uh, Prairie View A and M being one of them, um, Texas Southern being another. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is a, it's kind of bringing all of that, uh, the history, the statistics, the records, the championships, the legends, uh, all of those stories, it is, it's, it's introducing it into, into the present day. And one of the things that you made a very good point of, and that maybe is, is often overlooked, and I think you made this point in the book too, is that um, when, when desegregation occurred, <clears throat> Uh, so basically the Prairie View Inter Interscholastic League was being absorbed into uh, the UIL, the University Interscholastic mm -hmm. League, which is the governing body of, of sports and extracurricular activities in the state of Texas. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the schools, uh, black schools, were being were absorbed into, uh, I guess, traditionally white schools or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And so the records, the statistics, the championships, the banners, the trophies – None of that really came with those schools. It 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 went into, well, um, you know this. Uh, and actually, I think you talk about that in the, just here locally in Conroe. Mm -hmm. uh, and and forgive me if I get the names incorrect, but I think it was Conroe High School and then Washington High School. Conroe uh, Conroe Washington was the black high school, yep. and yep. Conroe High School was the white high school. Okay, yeah. yeah. And effectively, Conroe Washington was. Um, uh, absorbed into Conroe High School mm -hmm. and Conroe Washington was an amazing football school won a couple of national oh. or a couple of, uh, state championships, state championships. and awesome. it, it wasn't at least in the short time in short term uh, you know into the end of the 60s and into the 70s mm -hmm. uh, just as desegregation had occurred those records those banners those statistics weren't acknowledged yeah yeah and that 
that was one of the really sad things about mm. this, the experience of the PVIL. Yeah. You know, the, they called it a, they called it a merger when the PVIL and the uh, UIL came together. Um, but it was really a hostile takeover mm. because what happened was with integration all of a sudden in, in the late 60s, you had all these black schools uh, shutting down. You know, there were at their peak, there were about 500 uh, PVIL schools across the state, um, ranging from, you know, junior high schools and, and, and high schools and, and in some cases even elementary schools. But the, uh, a large majority of those schools are the most more noticeable of, of those schools were the high schools, of course. You know, so, but when the UI, UIL decides to integrate, you know, the UIL had started in 19... 1913, something like that, and they um, had written in, into their constitution that their membership was available only to any public white school, you know, so they had nothing to do with mm -hmm. uh, black and black high school uh, in extracurricular activities, and the, the PVIO comes along and forms as the Texas Interscholastic League of Colored Schools in 1920 at Prairie View. And basically, it's a mirror organization, mm -hmm. you know, for the UIL. So, you know, one's doing doing their thing for, for black schools and the other's doing their thing for white schools. And never the twain should meet. And, <laughs> you know, of course, they, they, they kind of never did. Um, so in the late 60s, starting in 1967, uh, when they decided to, quote, unquote, merge, uh, the the uh, UIL did absorb the PVIL, but in doing so, they didn't take any of the PVIL records. Mm -hmm. They didn't acknowledge anything like that. They just said, okay, now your schools, your kids are going to go to white schools mm -hmm. and we're going to close down your schools. And a lot of those black schools just started to be uh, demolished um, and just kind of disappeared. Of those 500 schools now, there are eight schools uh, that still survive, five in the Houston area and three in Dallas-Fort Worth area. And all of them are in some state of uh, peril uh, in regard to being closed. But yeah, uh, when, the, when the merger actually happened, they didn't take any of those records and basically the PVIO just kind of went away. And also, uh, for their part, the PVIL didn't do a good job of trying to preserve a lot of, a lot of their uh, history okay. either. And but a lot of people found um, PVIL memorabilia in dusty closets with cobwebs, or some people, you know, even managed to retrieve some of the artifact out of uh, garbage bins and, and that sort of thing, because a lot of those schools were just unceremoniously just demolished, you know, bulldozed, yeah. you know, really. And so there really were, were no, not a lot of tangible facts uh, um, uh, or sites, you know, for uh, for the PVIL and its history. You know, all of that stuff just kind of all of a sudden went away. You know, and the UIL finally in 2006 decided to uh, acknowledge the records. And it's not really not a lot of records. You know, it's basically, you know, the state championship playoffs and who won state championships. Mm -hmm. But sadly, there, there's no way to say... You know, Joe Smith was the all-time leading rusher or passer yeah. or this team did this or that, you know. And that that was the very sad part about that, 
you know, merger, you know, that they called it because they really did just say, okay, we're going we're gonna to take the PVIL players. They didn't really take the schools. Mm-hmm. They just took the players, sure. you know, because they were going, now they're going to the uh, former all-white uh, all schools. And uh, the PVIL mm-hmm. just kind of went away. Well, and, and you mentioned that <clears throat> they kind of took the players. Mm-hmm. A lot of teachers, a lot mm-hmm. of coaches also found themselves at sometimes at best demoted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and many times teachers uh, found themselves, they, they were out of a job. Because yeah, they were. I the mean, they took, like, I, literally, they, they took the players. And I might add, in most cases, they were really glad to get those players. Sure. Oh, because yeah. you're talking about... <laughs> I well just look at the UIL now and and the and the uh, outstanding blue chippers and and all stars yeah. and all states and all that kind of, you know the majority of who are black players and a lot of that kind of talent uh, was in the PVIL yeah. so you know b- even before integration you had white coaches who could see that coming and they could not have been more excited sure. because all of a sudden you have these uh, these athletes. And it, it changed the game, you know. Um, uh, before integration, white coaches really looked down their noses at, at black coaches, and, and and a lot of them still do, because they don't think they, you know, this whole thing about uh, black men not being able to, not smart enough mm-hmm. to to lead a team and, and create offenses and defensive uh, strategies and and philosophies and that sort of thing, but there were and. When integration comes along, all of a sudden, you know, these uh, white programs have these incredible black players, and a lot of programs that had not been winning before got this infusion of uh, athletic talent, mm-hmm. and they they started winning. Mm-hmm. They started playing for state championships. They were excited, exciting to watch because now you've got this speed and athleticism and and a little dose of showmanship thrown in there, you know, and, and it really changed the look. You know of, of the uh, of the UIL. On the other hand, there were black coaches who had won state championships and produced all these great players. Uh, who, uh, as you mentioned, they would they joined the uh, the uh, the uh, white coaching staffs at these schools, but they really took demotions mm-hmm. because and for for a lot of those a lot of those guys they were just handed a, you know they were just the conduit. They were the guys who help to uh, create this communication line between the black player and his new white coach, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because, you know, it was the first for a lot of those guys you know, having to deal with, you know, each other, black people and white people in those situations. So, the, but the coaches who got those jobs, none of them got head coaching jobs that I'm aware of, and, and I I'm, I'm, I'm pr- feel pretty comfortable saying that that none of them really got head coaching gigs at white schools. For the most part, you know, white parents didn't want their their sons playing for black coaches in the first place, you know, and they didn't want their children learning from black teachers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you had a lot of the, a lot of those black coaches uh, took demotions. A lot of them uh, got uh, classroom duty. They stopped coaching and just concentrated on uh, on teaching whatever their their uh, their classes. Uh, academic their classes were and uh, but a lot of them lost jobs mm-hmm. so you had just a ton of very talented black teachers who all of a sudden were out of work um, and uh, coaches who were not really 
being coaches, mm-hmm. you know, coaches in name only. So they they <laughs> lost a lot of um, they lost a lot of jobs, and a lot of, a lot of them just retired. Yeah, I mean they didn't they didn't even want to deal with that. So you have you have an interesting story yourself, and mm-hmm. and 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 I think you are one of the perfect people to to tell this story. Because as you mentioned, you're a Worthing High School graduate here in in Houston. You're a Houston guy, and you have you have an interesting story. And you graduated high school in 1967, mm-hmm. just as integration was was taking shape. Mm-hmm. That that kind of was the um, a watershed year, one of the watershed years uh, of that integration was taking place. And you said uh, in your book that. In in the spring of '67, you graduated, and you graduated from uh, a segregated school mm-hmm. at that point, and you come back for homecoming in the fall of 1967, <laughs> and it's a very different it was scene. Very different. Yeah, so, so talk about that. Talk about you know, and this is firsthand. This is your experience. Yeah, it, it was. I, I had uh, <laughs> gone to segregated schools all of, all of my life, you know, elementary schools and um, and high school. And uh, you know, I'm from a, a family of teachers. My mom was a second grade teacher, mm-hmm. and and had other, you know, aunts and uncles uh, who also taught uh, in elementary at the elementary school level. But so I had gone to all segregated schools, and I graduated from Worthing in the spring of 1967, and the fall of 1967 was the first season that black schools and white schools uh, started to play against each other, and 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 black kids were you know starting to play mm-hmm. at white schools, previously uh, all white schools. So <laughs> I go back for homecoming in the fall, and it was just I I, well, I don't even know if I can describe it. it <laughs> I it, you know most of the schools uh, throughout that PVIL history in uh, in Houston. You know, the black schools played at uh, Jefferson Stadium in Third Ward. Mm-hmm. So the game that I go to and, uh, you know, for my homecoming, my first homecoming, it was held at some, I, I'm, forget, I'm forgetting the name of the stadium now, but it was somewhere in southwest Houston. And uh, so the atmosphere is very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we were playing, I want to say it was Westbury or something like that, you know, one of the previously all-white schools. It might have still been all-white. And... Um, the atmosphere was very different. Mm. Uh, the quality of play was probably not very good, <laughs> not what I, <laughs> you know, you had expected. Uh, and I ended up, I think I left at halftime. Yeah. You know, because I, I was just so disappointed. You know, because, you know, when uh, you know when black schools and you know would play each other. I mean, part of black high school football uh, or any black sporting event really but especially football you know the halftime and the bands and and this cultural uh, mm-hmm. uh element that mm-hmm. goes there and so you know you you go to a black high school football game and and it's it's almost like a party at mm-hmm. some points because the bands are the bands were just top notch and yeah. you know they would be playing you know this r&b tunes you know whatever was popular in the day and it was just a, a real festive atmosphere uh, and but I I went to homecoming that year and it was just so disappointing. Like I said, I, I left at halftime and really never went back. You know, I went back to my for my fiftieth anniversary uh, a couple of years ago, and that was the first time I had been to a uh, a Worthing high school game. Really? You know, I I, I just hadn't gone back yeah, yeah. because it changed because it just changed so sure, much. Sure. Sure. You know, so. 
Yeah. Well, I imagine, yeah, you, you, you identified with the high school that you left mm-hmm. in, in 1967. And I think, and, and, and don't let me speak out of turn, but I think <laughs> if, if, if you, if it was an all Asian school, all white school, mm-hmm. like you, you, you feel the same way. You, you mm-hmm. leave the school and mm-hmm. you know, you go, you, because the school isn't necessarily about, uh, the colors or the stadium. Mm-hmm. It's about the people that you went to school with. Exactly. And then you go back and like, wait a minute, all these people, they're saying their class is 67. Like, I didn't yeah. I don't know you. I didn't go to school with you. And so, yeah, I, I, I definitely can see that. Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, it, it, there was this family feeling with mm-hmm. black high school football, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, this thing about segregation, I think, created tighter black communities. You know, everybody pretty much having to deal with whatever the racial nonsense was about you know, racism and, and all sure. that kind of stuff. And, you know, and, and you have all of these connections within the community. And, you know, a, a, most of the uh, black families had gone to the same high schools and raised their kids in the same neighborhoods and grandparents and all that knew, knew, knew each other. So there was that kind of connection. And that died when, uh, when integration came along. Mm. And, you know, talking with a lot of guys, you know, for the book and my research and, and, and still talking to, to people about that era. And they, 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 they bemoaned They really felt that, you know, integration was going to kill black communities. And, and it did. Mm-hmm. You know, the good thing was, okay, we've got integration. We've got all of these wonderful new opportunities for, for jobs and entertainment and, and, and so forth. But at the same time, you started to see uh, families moving out of traditional black neighborhoods into, quote-unquote, better neighborhoods mm-hmm. uh, and, that, and that sort of thing. But you started to see this fracturing, and part of that fracturing was uh, the black high schools that were, you know, uh, closed and demolished. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that... I, you can still see that effect today, I think, because yeah. there's there's this loss of culture mm-hmm. and a loss of the sense of history, mm-hmm. you know, and and a lot of that came about because of integration. Yeah. So let's back up. <clears throat> Prior to integration, you spend uh, a lot of time in the book uh, discussing some of the stories that uh, pretty much until this book was published, they were just handed down by word of mouth. Uh, it was a couple of people knew this story and, you know, it just, that's kind of how it stayed alive. So let's back up a little bit to some of the, some of the guys that you focused on, some of the, some of the uh, people that you had an opportunity to sit down with and mm-hmm. have conversations with. And, you know, they talked about, I think it was, you know, Washington high school, the 1952 or 53 uh, teams that were just incredible. They were amazing mm-hmm. teams. Uh, spend a little bit of time talking about some of the, the highlights of you know, some of the legends that mm-hmm. you and, and the icons that you that you highlight, um, but then also some of the uh, and I've got this here in my notes that you know I, I think it's well documented that segregation you know the 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 law said separate mm-hmm. but equal and I think we can all agree that that, that wasn't true that, yeah. that that wasn't it separate but unequal exactly <laughs> yeah and I you mentioned at, at one point in the book where. Some of the high schools, some of the uh, black high schools, had to rely on hand-me-downs and uniforms that you know they, you know, white schools had used for two mm-hmm. and three and you know, five years ago. Uh, but then some schools, and you talk about the sense of community, mm-hmm. um, and I can't, and, and it's it's escaping me uh, 
the the story, and this might um, I'm cer- certainly you can elaborate on it. But uh, I think it was the coach's wife. Um, they they basically put together like their basically their own uniforms, and and she was uh, she went and washed the uniforms mm-hmm. for the teams and, and all that. So to so talk about. The, the, the community that was created and some of the icons and the legends during that time. Yeah, you know, uh, those schools, the communities rallied around yeah. those schools, you know, and, and the, the coaches, the coach you were talking, to, talking about, Coach Brown, Coach Charles Brown and his wife Carolyn um, at Conroe, Washington. Yeah, and they're like maybe my favorite people in the book. Yeah. You know, because first of all, they're just really nice people. And we had a really uh, good interview session, you know, when I caught up with them and, and we, we sat down and talked. But, yeah, you would, uh, you know, back in the day, you might drive by Coach Brown's house and you'd see uh, all these freshly washed uniforms hanging over their fence to dry, <laughs> you know, because the, uh, the, the school district didn't give them a washing machine, mm-hmm. you know, and... And so she took it upon herself. I mean, talk about a team mother. That's what she yeah. was. She'd do the laundry, the team laundry, and you know, just be the mother, you know, for a lot of those for a lot of those players, you know. And every now and then would cook a big meal for the team, and 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 all that sort of thing. But I I I don't doubt that 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 there were other coaches. Uh, you know, who had those kinds of relationships with their teams and their coaches and their families. And, and so there was this big family family sense. But the uh, Conroe Washington is also what, uh, one of my favorite stories because that program was so incredible. You know, from 1960 to 1966, uh, Conroe Washington, let's see, they won the uh, uh, PVIL 2A level state championship in 1960. They won it again in 1965. And in both of those seasons, they were undefeated. Mm-hmm. So for those two seasons combined, they were they were 26-0 uh, um, or something like that. And um, they played for the state championship in two or three other seasons mm-hmm. in that run. So for that six-year six period, they Incredible. were just dominant. Yeah. In the state at the uh, at the two A level, and uh, so so you had that uh, you had that kind of program. Uh, of course, and then there was Pat Patterson, the uh, the great Pat Patterson at Jack Yates High School in Houston, who uh, was probably the best of the uh, PVIO coaches in their in their history. And and I have some co- some of the coaches who would agree with me on that. Yeah. I mean, Pat was just this incredible athlete. At Wiley College, um, I'm not sure how he got from Gary, Indiana, to Wiley College, but he did. And uh, he's in Wiley history. Coach Patterson is known as, as or their greatest all-around athlete. You know, football, baseball, basketball, track, tennis, you name it. You know, Pat Patterson did it. He had pitched for a while in in the uh, Negro baseball leagues. And so he ends up at Jack Yates High School in 1939, 1930-39, uh, starts to coach there. And while he's at Jack Yates, in his career at Yates, he wins state championships in football, basketball, and baseball. Oh you know, and I, I don't know too many coaches, if, any, if there are a lot of coaches at all, you know, who, who can claim yeah. something like that. 
You know, I'm still looking to see if he won one in tennis. I'm not sure yet, <laughs> you know, because if anybody would have been able to pull that off, it would have been Coach Patterson. Yeah. But, I mean, you had uh, coaches like that. Uh, I grew up around the corner from, from a guy named Otis Taylor, who was this great, you know, quarterback mm-hmm. in high school at Worthing. Uh, he goes to Prairie View, and, uh, and there's a guy at Prairie View named Jimmy Kearney from Wharton, Texas, who was a way better quarterback than Otis. I mean, but that was indicative of the kind of talent that black colleges got, you know, back in the day, yeah. you know, they had their, their, uh, they could pick and choose the blue, the blue chip players that they wanted. And, uh, Billy Nix did that big time at Prairie View. So Otis gets to Prairie View and Jimmy Kearney is there. And it's like Jimmy Kearney's the quarterback at Prairie View <laughs> and, uh, Otis Taylor will be the wide receiver. Uh, and so, of course, oh, this goes on. They both go on. Ironically, they both ended up in the uh, AFL playing for the Kansas City Chiefs mm-hmm. and uh, Super Bowl uh, champions and uh, all pros, both of those guys. So that's the kind of talent coming out of the PVIL. Jack Yates had just a, a slew of players. Uh, Alphonse Dotson, who went on to, to play at Grambling, was an All-American player at Grambling. Uh, and then played for the Raiders. And, of course, his son, Santana Dotson, mm-hmm. uh, played for Green Bay Packers uh, and also played at Yates uh, after integration, but but he was also a Yates grad. But, I mean, there, you know, Charlie Taylor out of Dalworth High School up north, you know, near Dallas, uh, 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 people like that. Uh, just this, this string of, of incredible players were, were coming out of that league, but nobody really recognize them, you know, in terms of a media standpoint, mm-hmm. um, I mean, because of the times, because yeah. of segregation. But there are all these inc- incredible guys who came out of, out of there, you know, uh, Kenny Houston from uh, Lefkin Dunbar and, 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 and guys like that. And nobody, like I said, nobody at that level really asked them to tell their stories, you know. And we find out about a lot of these guys after... Uh, they get to the NFL, or, mm-hmm. or back then it was, it was more it was more the AFL. But in terms of what they had done at the high school level, that just kind of drifted by the wayside. And, and what's surprising about that to me is, you know, the state is so high school football crazy, you know. And you know, when I'm starting around research, it's like, how could you not write about these guys? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm saying, well, you know, <laughs> duh. That was the segregation. Of course, I'm not going to write about those guys. You know, but the state is so crazy about high school football. But these guys were just kind of not noticed. Mm-hmm. You know, they were just in the shadows. Mm-hmm. I think that's the chapter in my book. You know, in the shadows of the uh, of the uh, UIL mm-hmm. and behind this veil of segregation. So. <clears throat> Also, part of um, I don't know if this was, and 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 I'll let you. I'll have you elaborate a bit more on it. Um, but uh, a, a byproduct of segregation was that historically black universities and colleges uh, had big influx and filtering mm-hmm. of that talent into into their programs. And so you also also not only had college students, not only had high schools that were incredibly talented and and just full of talent and uh, competing at the state level. But you also had then um, uh, universities and colleges like Prairie View, uh, mm-hmm. Texas Southern, Grambling, Southern in Louisiana, 
uh, that were that had most of this. I mean, a lot of these uh, players would then go on to uh, black colleges and black universities. Mm-hmm. So, and and I know that you mentioned you know quite a bit about uh, this in your book. So, talk a bit about the context mm-hmm. around. Um, and I know that you also talk <coughs> about. Um, how how a lot of these uh, black colleges and universities were founded, uh, mm-hmm. founded by people that had come down, um, you know, for, uh, they that left, you know, Chicago or Methodists, exactly, yeah. yeah, missionaries, yeah. So, yeah. So, so talk more about that. Yeah, um, the um, the black colleges uh, segregation was a was a good thing for black colleges, <laughs> academically and and athletically, sure. because. Yeah. They almost automatically got the best and the brightest. I mean, you had some um, some uh, uh, black black high school kids who graduated and went to school up north or, or, or out west or in the Midwest, but for the most part, you know, they stayed at they stayed at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were what do you have like Prairie View, Texas Southern, Wiley, uh, Texas College. I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody in there. Yeah, uh, Jarvis Christian. So there were five or six. Really good uh, black colleges in the state, you know, where so you could stay in state, mm-hmm. you know, and go to school, and, and plus, you know, the, the uh, tuitions, you know, were were reasonable, yeah. you know, for black families back then, you know, for the most part, and of course a lot of the, the athletes themselves got, you know, um, scholarships or kind of work, some kind of work study thing mm-hmm. or, or something like that, but segregation just kind of fueled. The, the greatness of those programs, you know, because you had a, a, a tiny school like Texas College in, um, oh, Texas College in Tyler. And um, Texas College won a black college national championship mm-hmm. one year. You know, and I don't even think Texas College had more than a couple of thousand students, wow. you know, on that campus, if that many. But th- this tiny school, you know, but black talent was spread out so much at that time in the mm-hmm. state because I mean again if you wanted to go to college and and and, and play football and, and stay in your home you went to one of those black colleges mm-hmm. and so all those programs were incredible back in the day uh, TSU won a national uh, black college national championship uh, Wiley won a couple at least uh, and of course uh, Prairie View won five under under Billy Nix and so all of those all of those programs were benefiting from segregation, and so the the reverse happens with integration. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden now they're not getting that, those players anymore yeah. automatically, if at all. They're not getting good black players. All the good black players are now going to the University of Texas and and all the other big schools mm-hmm. and 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 that sort of thing. So where segregation fueled uh, the success of historically black colleges, uh, integration basically drained those schools and. In writing about, um, uh, you know, I've written about black college football, boy, uh, for maybe about thirty years mm-hmm. now, and and studying that history and everything. And and the thing that I I, I always say about them is that uh, all of those they had these golden recruiting pipelines uh, with segregation, with integration, all those pipelines rusted up, mm-hmm. you know, because again they're they're just not getting those kids anymore, and uh, you know. Uh, and I think you were you were asking about the history of some of those schools after um, after emancipation, eighteen sixty three in Texas, um, 
1860 and the rest of the world <laughs> and, uh, and the, U- the United States when Lincoln signs a proclamation. You know, Texas finds out about it two and a half years later. Um, but after uh, emancipation, one of the first things that uh, a lot of former slaves uh, wanted to do uh, was learn to read mm-hmm. because, you know, they had been, it, it was forbidden for slaves to learn in general. Uh, but a lot of slaves, uh, once once they were freed, one of the first things they wanted to do was get an education. They wanted to learn to read. And a lot of them, it was as simple as it, they wanted to learn to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. They wanted to at least learn to read the Bible, you know, and nurture their their spirit and their faith. You know, but you did have a lot of uh, philanthropic and uh, religious uh, organizations um, uh, up north who came down after emancipation and helped to establish some of these schools. Um, but it wasn't easy because there was a big uh, pushback from a lot of people in the white community who didn't think uh, black people had the capacities to learn and uh, they thought it would be a waste of money trying to educate mm-hmm. you know, black people. But... The schools started anyway under quite a bit of duress because there were a lot of physical challenges and, um, you know, threats from the, the Ku Klux Klan and, and just, you know, a lot of just racist people in general who didn't want to see black people mm-hmm. learn and, and, and succeed and, 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 and that sort of thing. But the uh, Freedmen's Bureau came along after Reconstruction and helped to get uh, black high schools uh, started um, uh, in this state and throughout the South, and in, in fact, the Freedmen's Bureau was was doing that kind of work. So you you get these schools uh, starting to uh, uh, be built, and blacks are having the opportunities to get education. And like I said, when the PVIO finally comes around in 1920, at a track meet, no doubt. You know, it's it's funny. the The UIL started because of volleyball. <laughs> And the uh, the uh, PVIL started at a track meet, you know. So, uh, but the PVIL comes along to really kind of cement, if that's the right word, um, what the possibilities were for uh, you know for black people, mm-hmm. you know, not only from a standpoint, you know, there were jobs, you know, teaching jobs, you know, for 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 black uh, for black men and women. And uh, then you have the athletic, the programs came along, and all of a sudden, you know, these kids have an outlet to display their their athletic abilities, yeah. you know, as well as their, as well as their academic abilities, because the, the PVIL um, had, had state championships not only in athletics, but also uh, uh, music and academics, mm-hmm. you know, I think they had typing competitions and and that and that sort of thing and, yep. and debating debate. you know yep. champion debate of which uh, you know Barbara Jordan was a PVIL champion state champion debater you know in speech and, yep. and that sort of thing you know so um, I, I think I answered your question I'm playing if I answer, actually answered your question I got to rambling there <laughs> no you you certainly did no and I I you have you have Excuse me. You have my endorsement to ramble. You are you are you are filled with with knowledge. You're filled Uh, with history, mm -hmm. Um, and it's uh, I mean it's it's all incredibly enriching, and I I love it. Um, I think our listeners are are going to be very much enlightened by a lot of Mm -hmm. this. Uh, I think 
I think most people have some sort of idea, mm-hmm. you know, whether, um, and certainly not to, to marginalize this topic, but if, if, if anyone has ever seen um, the movie, I remember the Titans, yeah. they, they kind of have some sort of idea mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, integration was not this, you know, hunky-dory, you know, unicorns and rainbows, yeah. oh man, this is going to be awesome. Yeah. You know, it was, yeah. there, were, there were growing pains on both sides. On both sides, uh, of, exactly. Of, of the, of the, you know, on both sides of, of integration. Well, um, it's funny, Andy, that, you know, I've been going around the state and talking about the book and doing interviews like this yeah. and, and so forth. But, uh, you know, when I've gone out to speak and done book signings and that sort of thing, uh, the reception has been wonderful. And I, I've had a lot of, um, uh, a, a lot of people, a, a lot of white people who have come up to me after and said, you know, I had no idea mm-hmm. that this existed. Yep. You know, pe- that, which, you know, again, go, goes to what I, what I had mentioned earlier about the fact that, you know, they, these schools and teams weren't covered, mm-hmm. you know, by mainstream media, you know, yep. the, the, most of the local newspapers. And in Texas, I mean, literally, and especially in East Texas, a lot of towns, uh, there, there was a railroad track in the middle you know, whites live on one side of the track and blacks lived on the other side of the tracks mm-hmm. and, and there was very little crossing the tracks, yeah. you know, even where uh, athletics uh, were, were concerned, you know. So, but a lot of people have come up to me and just said, you know, man, thank you for this book. You know, I, I didn't even know this and I grew up in, you know, whatever town and I had never thought about it like this, yeah. you know, what the black kids in our town were, were having to go through and what those teams were about and who, who they were and how good they played. I mean, even though some of the black black high schools had uh, a large following of white fans, even when they would travel on the road, um, their uh, their uh, fan base, the, the fans who would travel with them for the most part would be, you know, white people mm-hmm. who knew that. But there were uh, obviously a lot more white people who just had nothing to do with those black schools sure. and had no idea what, what was going on there and and who was there and, and uh, how successful they were. But, you know, in, in my conversations uh, going out and talking about the book, a lot of people have uh, read the book and that's what they had gleaned from it. You know, they have, man, this this took me back to my high school, yeah. you know, but I didn't know this was, you know, but I, and I just heard a lot of, I've heard, I've heard a lot of really good stories too. You know, this reminded me of my high school days. And, oh, I remember that team. I remember that school and that sort of thing. Well, and you, you highlight, and not to, to be, um, um, geographically centric here, mm-hmm. but talking about Conroe, Washington, Conroe, High School. There's a very interesting story, um, kind of the, the the contrast, but also the maybe it was for for lack of a better term, it was like the the high school is kind of playing chicken with each other in terms of following each other and, and rooting for each other. And you mentioned, um, I think there was a, a reunion, um, you know, late, you know, in the '90s or early 2000s, mm-hmm. and uh, you tell this story about um, they had this reunion and. Uh, the, it was number 12, I believe, that for Conroe Washington. It was just mm-hmm. an incredible football player, and the name's escaping me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then someone uh, at the reunion was like, hey, yeah, you were that guy. And, oh, my mm-hmm. God, let me shake your hand. Because mm-hmm. I remember watching you, and you were just incredible. And it was just that mixing of, of cultures, and people were rooting for each other. But they, it kind of, 
they they may had felt that societal pressure to mm, well because you're because you're white you don't need to be watching this black football game you don't need to be rooting for him exactly and and kind of afterwards at the reunion that was a man no I, we were rooting for you the whole time this, this it was crazy it was amazing we loved it yeah I, I, I that is a good story and you know that in that situation that what you're talking about was the uh, Conroe Independent School District. Uh, several years ago, uh, presented the uh, Conroe Championship champions uh, right. with rings. It, so it was, they, it was a ring ceremony, and they recognized both of those uh, state championship teams, which are the only state championship football teams for, in Conroe's history. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a black school. I, I, I write in the book that at Conroe High School, Conroe Washington High School football was the uh, best show in town in Conroe <laughs> for a long yeah. time. Uh, that's how good those guys were, but yeah, they they come together that night, and you know these guys, the uh, who can make that ceremony, were pre- presented with rings, and there were people, you know, talking to these guys, going up and said, yeah, you know, grown ups, right? mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I remember you guys playing, and you were my favorite player, yeah. you know, and all that sort of thing, but you know that, and, and it just kind of highlighted how how much. Uh, say this right, how much we are the same, but at the same time, for that era, there was still this distance, mm-hmm. that, that this gap that couldn't be bridged. It's like maybe you could watch these guys play, but you didn't associate with those guys. Yep. You yep. know, you didn't go up trying to get their autographs after the games and, and, and that sort of thing. And yet, you know, 50-some years later, uh, in this, you know, light years away, in a, in a totally different time, you know, uh, people are able to stand back and, and, and reflect on, on that era, but at the same time uh, acknowledge the progress and just in, in thinking and the way people think and the way people look at each other now. And, and, and I say that that night, it was, it was uh, for, I think it was a season opener for the Conroe High School football season or something like that. You know, for that night, you had that community coming together and, and healing in mm-hmm. a large sense. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, because back in the day, if you were black, you couldn't even go in that stadium, the Conroe Stadium. Mm-hmm. You know, now all of a sudden you've got the, the the stands are integrated, and you know the team, of course, is integrated and all of that. And and during uh, I think it's between quarters or something like that, you have these 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 this line of black men, you know, being honored. You know, way overdue. You know, yeah. because, you know, when they won their championships um, back in the 60s, they just kind of won the championship. <laughs> you know, there were no parades yeah. or, or anything like that. You know, they won their championship and, you know, maybe the team had a party. The school recognized it, but the community as a whole, you know, took all of that time. You know, I mean, they couldn't do it back then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I mean, you know, they could have, but they they weren't going to do it back then. Sure, that sure. That was not that sort of thing was not that kind of recognition was not going to happen yeah. for those guys back yeah. then. I love it. I so <clears throat> to to move off of the book a little mm-hmm. bit uh, because I do want to tap into you. You've been a sports writer here in Texas mm-hmm. for 
Uh, I mean, gosh, I, I don't want to date you too much, but Very nearly long. 40 years. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> so, so you graduated from Worthing High School in 67. Mm-hmm. You did spend time uh, seven or eight years in the, in the Air Force. In the Air Force, yeah. Uh, and then you went to work for um, uh, the Austin... The uh, Austin American Statesman. Austin American uh, Statesman, yeah. Uh, I, started out at, yeah. I started out at the Houston Post in, in 1979 in my professional right. career. Yeah. But uh, when I was at the University of Texas, uh, 1976 to 1979... And I started working for the Daily Texan, and just an extremely distinguished uh, journalistic publication yeah. among uh, among college newspapers, one of the best in the, in the nation. So many great great journalists have come out of that school, yeah. and, and me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I. Uh, but when I was at the Texan and, and going to school at UT. I had a I had a part time job at the American Statesman. Uh, back in the day, they called it, the, the title was being a copy boy, uh, and basically, well, this is like ancient technology. But I'll, I'll just say basically, <laughs> you were just helping out in the newsroom. Uh, so, I started there in college and just kind of learning the ropes and, and writing for the text. And my first job was at the Houston Post. Uh, in 1979, and my first beat was covering the Southwestern Athletic Conference, mm-hmm. the SWAC, you know, the black colleges, mm-hmm. you know, and so, I thought, and I thought that was great because I knew those guys. Yeah. I knew who those guys were, yeah. and one of those guys was Ada Robinson, and I met, the first time I met Coach, it was like meeting God, you know, <laughs> and I... I've I've been fortunate in, in that I've interacted and, and interviewed and covered just some incredible big name famous athletes, you know. And now I'm sitting in front of Eddie Robinson, <laughs> the Eddie Robinson. I mean, Eddie is beyond a legend in uh, college football, yeah. let yeah. alone black college football. And and I had all I could do to contain myself and 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 and, and be have some kind of professional uh, demeanor, but so yeah, he coached the Grambling for he what, coached the Grambling years, forever. Years, won I mean, fifty or sixty team. years. Yeah, he won a lot of national championships and swag championships yeah. and you name it, but was just the you know Eddie was the face of black college football. Throughout his career, mm-hmm. you know, well, for the most part, you know, throughout his career, he, he was the face of black college football. And, and that program mm-hmm. was the face of, of uh, black college football. Mm-hmm. A lot of people know about historically black college uh, football because of Ada Robinson and because of Grambling. You know, and for me, for my first, you know, as a cub reporter, you know, for the Houston Post, uh, I'm covering the SWAC and, and I am doing an interview, a one-on-one interview with Eddie Robinson. And I just I, I just kept, you know, pinching myself and, and thinking, man, this is going to be a really good career. <laughs> I get to talk to people like Eddie Robinson. Yeah, so, but yeah, I, I started there and um, I worked at the Statesman uh, uh, professionally, uh, covering the Southwest Conference, and then um, I got a really nice break and went to USA Today, mm-hmm. and I'm acknowledged as one of the founders of USA Today because I was on their first staff. You know, I got to USA Today uh, in 1982, August 82, 
And the first edition um, came out that following month in September, you know. And so I got a really nice coffee cup saying that I'm a founder of USA Today. <laughs> so <laughs> that's pretty cool, you know. Uh, but that that was an, that was an incredible stop for me because I worked a year out of their main office in uh, Arlington, mm-hmm. uh, Virginia, and <coughs> excuse me. And uh, the following 10 years, I worked out of their uh, West Coast Bureau office in in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. which was right in Westwood, right across the street from UCLA campus. Mm -hmm. And I covered everything from whatever was going on in L.A., um, uh, Lakers, uh, Clippers, yeah, Yeah, yeah. over there 10 years, Lakers, Clippers, Rams, Raiders, Dodgers, Angels, UCLA, USC, you know, and all the way up the coast to Seattle, uh, across to Denver and down to Seattle. So the West Coast region, whatever sport, you know, major sports or or whatever, Olympics, I did the Olympics in 1984, whatever was going on, I I got to cover. I got to to cover everything that I I would ever want to cover and then some. You know, my favorite sport is uh, basketball, so I love the NBA mm-hmm. and, and being in L.A. when Showtime was Showtime. Oh, my gosh. You know, and, and having this, this this privileged seat on the floor and uh, watching Magic Johnson lead the fast break, you know, coming at you, man. I, Unreal. That, that was just incredible. <clears throat> so it was an exciting time in L.A. It was just this, uh, I think it was, a, it was an exciting time as a journalist, mm-hmm. Because there were so many thriving newspapers back then, mm. you know, you didn't have all this blogging and online uh, stuff and that sort of thing. Uh, you had a lot of, of very good uh, journalists mm. who were who were working back then, and and so uh, it, it was a wonderful era to be out there and and covering all that. And that's, you know, because I, I was really fortunate to be able to do that. And uh, I left that and went back to the Statesman and and. Uh, Actually, to work on the city side as an assistant city editor, and um, and that was that was totally different. But I, I enjoyed that uh, just as much, maybe even more. You know, and you know, made a uh, stop at uh, Yahoo Sports and a San Francisco Examiner for a little bit, and just doing a lot of freelancing. But at some point, I see it was nineteen eighty two. I was having lunch with a friend, and somehow the the story of uh, 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 the subject of black college football came up. And like with Thursday Night Lights, in fact, I feel like I, I, I've done two of the same book, <laughs> you know, because uh, black college football has a similar story to Thursday Night Lights. But I started talking to my friends. I wonder if I've ever written that story, and, and I just started sketching out on a cocktail yeah. napkin my outline, and I end up... You know, getting a book, getting a book out of that. But in the course of doing that book, you know, I would sit in the uh, libraries and look at old black newspapers like the Pittsburgh Courier, the the Baltimore African American, Chicago Defender, on microfilm doing my research. And in the process of doing that, you know, I would call this paper up and say, "Well, I only need to look at the sports section," but I I could never do it like that hmm. because I would. Open it, you know, read the 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 front page. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my God, you know, there people were writing about African American, you know, history, mm-hmm. you know, 
I mean, just covering the black community back then, you know, unlike the uh, mainstream uh, uh, media had done. And I started coming across all of these things because a lot of those papers would have, you know, this day in black history or sure. some other black history story. So I go into this project, you know, trying to study uh, black sports history, black college football in particular. But I emerged as a black historian, you know, I, uh, well, yeah, I'm a black person who's a historian. That's, <laughs> that's studying black history. There, there, I got that out. So, you know, studying black history. Uh, so I, I took this big turn and I have just been this black history geek ever since. You know, to the point where I got this incredible job at Prairie View uh, uh, documenting black history in Texas, uh, 500 years worth. You know, so I started my career as a sports writer and I, I ended uh, as a historian. So it's, it's, it's been a pretty uh, interesting journey for me. Yeah, so you are currently you're the director of Prairie View A&M University's Texas Institute for Preservation of History and Culture. Yes, yeah. And we're um, uh, documenting 500 years of black history in Texas, uh, dating to 1528, so almost 500 years. Yeah. Uh, but we round up. So <laughs> it's 500 years of black history in Texas. <laughs> Give and it a couple more years. It'll be yeah, here. yeah, it'll be here. It'll be here before <laughs> you know it. Um, you know, and just a comprehensive examination of, of the black experience in, in yeah. Texas since uh, Estevanico. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the Moor uh, servant who came over with Cabeza de Vaca and some other Spanish um, conquistadors, you know, just coming forward, covering that entire experience. And we have a lot of work ahead of us, a lot of work to do, but I am having the time of my life, you know, I, because I love talking about it. Yeah. I love talking about black yeah. history. I love studying black history and, you know, who we were and how we got here and, and even more, you know, why you know, we have a lot of the situations that we have today mm -hmm. and because it's all rooted in history, you know, and the study and, you know, the, the re researching uh, Thursday Night Lights, you know, was just a treat yeah. for me because a lot of that history I, I, I know, but I, I learned so much more about the history, you know, so and I, I, I say Thursday Night Lights, it's a sports-themed book. But it's really a history book. It really social, is social history book about the uh, uh, black community in Texas. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's not a, um, it's not some narratives based around you know uh, one sport. It's it's one sport uh, as part of the um, the highlight or the context mm -hmm. of of I guess. Uh, segregation and, and black high school mm -hmm. um, college or excuse me black high school football yes yeah yeah exactly it's uh, there it it's all so you know connected you know because black communities back in the day and, and again just from personal experience I really, I, I think we all who, who grew up back then, there was this sense of community family, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I don't know how many times, you know, the guys that I spoke with, the stories, just all those guys told the same story about growing up back then, and, yeah. and, and they're all black, and, and not black neighborhoods, you know. If you did something wrong, you know, 
your parents knew about it by the time you got home, <laughs> and then you got it when you got home. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you got it before you got home, and your parents were fine with that. You know, one, one of my favorite quotes in the, uh, in the book, you know, uh, black coaches, I think black families and teachers back then too, were, were really, you know, I don't how to politically put this correct. Well, Jerry Levias... <laughs> You know, the great player from Beaumont Hebert and SMU. And then SMU, he, yeah. was, uh, he was the first um, uh, first black, black player in, uh, in, uh, the, in the, uh, Southwest Conference. the Southwest Conference. Yeah. And, yeah. and I know who his coach was, his Hayden Fry. Hayden Fry. I wonder how you know that. Uh, so, <laughs> but, you know, uh, uh, Levias was telling, said to me, you know, a lot of things that the coaches did to us back then would be called child abuse. <laughs> <laughs> The coaches back then didn't mind, didn't spare the paddle. They yeah. readily used that paddle, you know. But, but throughout the community, I mean, again, you know, if you did something wrong at school, you get paddled at school. You know, maybe you got paddled by a neighbor on the way home, <laughs> or your, or a grandparent, or uncle, or whoever who, who, you know. And then you got home, you got it again from your parents. You know, but I mean, it was all a part of, you know, they talk about, you know, it takes a community to raise a child. And that's what a lot of those communities did. Yeah. You know, communities raised a, a lot of um, black communities raised, raised those kids. And it was it was a group effort, you know, and uh, that that was the real, that, like I said, I think I'd mentioned earlier that the uh, black high schools were pretty much the centers uh, for those uh, communities mm-hmm. in terms of social activities and and nurturing and 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 that's and that sort of thing. So the book that you uh, previously wrote about that you alluded to, I, I definitely I want to highlight the title of that: mm-hmm. Black College Football, eighteen ninety two to nineteen ninety two, one hundred years of history, education, and pride. Mm-hmm. Um, so you authored that. When was that published? That book came out in nineteen ninety three. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I revised and updated it five years later, and they and they re released it. Yeah, you know, but it's still the only book that chronicles the programs at uh, historically black colleges. Yeah, you know, and they started they started playing. Uh, it's like twenty two, twenty three years after Rutgers and uh, mm. uh, Princeton. Yeah, uh, started yeah. you know organized college football, but I, that that's a that's a really good story too. I mean. Black colleges started the started those programs back then, you know. Just they were club teams, really. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't all that organized. But then they finally do get organized in um, 1892, and that's that's when this whole thing started for for the black colleges in uh, Salisbury, North Carolina. Livingston uh, College in Salisbury versus Biddle College, Biddle B I D D L E, <laughs> Biddle College in uh, in, uh, in Charlotte, in, in nearby Charlotte, and that, that's how it started. Over Christmas break, you know, students, a lot of students couldn't afford to go back home. Though I have to think back home, really back then wasn't all that far, but just that they couldn't afford to sure. ever get back home. But they started, and it's like in the middle of a snowstorm or right at the tail end of a snowstorm and all that kind of stuff. So, But it had you know, somewhat romantic beginnings uh, yeah. and just kind of grew out of that. 
And that's what it was. So I want to <clears throat> want a little off the cuff here, and mm-hmm. so I'll, I, I'll, I'll try to give you a little bit of time to think. But uh, so you are—I mean, you're a Houston sports guy. I mean, you're you're, you're from the city. You know mm-hmm. a ton about the you know the sports landscape, every sport. Um, I'm curious, and this mm-hmm. is always a you know question here on radio, and you know, people yeah. call in and they have their own opinion or whatever. But but someone with the the history and the context that you have. Um, if you had to choose the Mount Rushmore of, of <laughs> no. Houston, of Houston, and, and we'll and we'll we'll narrow it to oh. professional sports, at least. Oh, um, or if you want to expand, I'll I'll let, mm. I'll let you you know choose choose as you want. But but your your Mount Rushmore of of Houston <laughs> sports. Oh God! In your opinion, who would who would you have up there? Oh man! Right away, <laughs> you know, right away, uh, Earl Campbell and Nolan Ryan. Okay. You know, come to mind. Uh, now for the other two, man, that that's a really tough question. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I imagine because you have so much history and context, mm-hmm. it it might be a more difficult question for you. You know, for mm-hmm. someone who's got you know pieces, you know little <laughs> pieces and, and bits and pieces, like mm-hmm. oh, this person, this person, this person, boom, done. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, man, did you think about this guy? Did you, you know, did you yeah. think about this guy? You know, <laughs> yeah, because you know, uh, for me, I I pretty much gravitate towards the PBIO guys. Sure. And every time I hear a question like that, because again, I mean, that was my uh, sports experience growing up was yeah, mostly yeah. about the PVIL and the guys from PVIL schools who went on black colleges, you know, at Bishop and uh, um, um, uh, and all of the other uh, black colleges, TSU, Prairie View. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are guys I knew. So you know, I'm thinking, well, maybe I would put a Pat Patterson up yeah. there. I mean, uh, just, a, just a fantastic coach. I mean, somebody like that. But just in the overall scheme, uh, just talking about Houston sports, uh, that's... Oh man! Like I said, I Earl and uh, Earl and Nolan Ryan just jump right out at me. Yeah. And after that, it's like a it's like a million way tie for <laughs> for who else could go up there. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll let you off the hook on the other two. Yeah, maybe, did, maybe I'll let that, uh, that, that simmer for a little bit and yeah, come yeah. back with something before we finish. <laughs> like, oh, God. No, I appreciate you, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, doing doing that and, and humoring me for that. That's you know, certainly <laughs> always a, a debate, I'm sure, on uh, on sports talk radio and, and all oh, that. Oh, it is. I was listening there. the other day, and somebody asked a similar question to one of the one of the guys, and and of course, the guys that they mentioned, you know, they're like, oh, um, uh, you know, they're talking about the Texans players, yeah. and, and, and and you know, JJ Watt and, mm-hmm. and Deshaun Watson, Sean Watson. I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> great quarterback guy, yeah, uh, yeah, look yeah. back at that history a little bit, yeah. and so. But I think people, people obviously remember the players that they saw, yeah. You know, or yeah. whatever in their era, who they uh, who they uh, idolized or, or, or liked watching, you know, when they were growing up. Yeah. You know, so of course there would be, you know, heavily towards J.J. Uh, Watt or James Harden, and, sure, and, uh, and and people like that. You know, and my for me in my era, I mean, it's it's more of a, a history thing. Sure. Looking back at some of those guys. Now let me ask you your opinion on Hakeem Olajuwon. 
would would he would he be up there? Oh, and so, he, and so, so the reason I asked that, so for my opinion, I'm looking at it. You know, I mean, Vice Lama Jamma, he was here, mm-hmm. University of Houston, Vice Lama Jamma. They were three seconds away from winning the national championship, effectively, and then played here for the Rockets, mm-hmm. effectively for his entire career. I, I know he played for the Raptors for like one year. That mm-hmm. doesn't count. Um, and then you know, one uh, he was an MVP, but then also mm-hmm. uh, you know, won two two world championships, the NBA championships. So, but yeah, I was. Well, uh, yes, yeah, so, uh, certainly a large one. But if yeah. if you say a large one, you know, I I would also put Clyde Drexler. Yeah, Drexler. I mean, Clyde had an incredible career. Oh my gosh! You know, I mean, you, you mentioned Five Slamma Jamma. You know, I guess you could say he was one of the founders of Five oh, Slamma yeah. Jamma. You know, <laughs> but one of the one of the greatest, one of the top uh, players in NBA history. Mm-hmm. You know, played on the Dream Team mm-hmm. in, in the Olympics. You know, back then with, with uh, Michael and Bird and, and and all of those guys. So. Yeah, I, I would find it hard to put one or the other. Okay. You know, without one, without the other. I mean, yeah, yeah. For me, both of those guys, you know, would would certainly be way up there. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we can combine a. It's a. It's a Hakeem Drexler. Yeah, that, <laughs> definitely. That <laughs> was Clyde Elijah one. That's right. We can do that. <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> awesome. I, I want to be. I want to be mindful of your time. You have been incredibly generous talking about this book. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> this me. this book is not um, it's not a high, it's not a football book mm-hmm. it's not uh, an African American history book I think it is a Texas history book and it's a mm-hmm. cultural history book uh, I don't think you'd have to be a, a history nerd to to want to um, be interested in this book I think there's a lot of context for uh, just where things were and how they mm-hmm. have, have come to be about. And it creates just a lot of context. And I think it helps people to be just more informed in, in general um, mm-hmm. with whether it's football, whether it's education, uh, whether it's culture. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's an incredible bu- book. Um, masterfully done. I really, really enjoyed oh, thank reading you. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's um, an excellent, um, it's an excellent resource for people to, to read and just be, much more informed. Oh, thank you, I, and I, I really appreciate that. Like I said, the the feedback that I've gotten has been very largely uh, positive. Uh, I, I've been very well received, you know, at book signings mm-hmm. and and speaking events and and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And again, so many people talking about how the memories that this book brought back with them. You know, of their own high school days and, and growing up in, in some of these small communities where high school football was was such a big deal, and uh, and 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 just thanking me, you know, for telling this story. And uh, I mean, I'll admit, I, you know, when I started this, I thought, you know, well, this, you know, people need to know about this, and so I'm going to write this book. You know, and I'm not thinking about. You know, oh, it's going to be a bestseller or, or, or any of those kinds of things. You know, just thinking this this kind of book needs to be out there. But the reception that I've gotten, and it came out a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. you know, October uh, uh, 2017. And for the most part, since this book came out, I've, I've been running around the state, running my mouth, yeah. you know, talking about uh, the PVIL and, and, and black high school football. And, but again, it, it's been just so wonderfully received. Mm-hmm. And I, I've just had some very good uh, engaging conversations with people, not only about um, 
uh, high school football or black high school football, but just what Texas was like, what, what our society was like in Texas back then and yeah. how it was to grow up back then. And, and again, a lot of that is my story as well because I went through a lot of those things too, you know, growing up first 10 years of my life in Texarkana, Texarkana, Texas. And, you know, we'd, um, you know, couldn't go here, you couldn't go there. And if you went to the, 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 uh, the movie theaters downtown, you had to sit upstairs and you had to sit in the balcony, which, you know, we thought was cool because we could throw stuff over the edge and, <laughs> and side people and get kicked out of the theater and all that. Uh, but I mean, I mean, that was my experience, you know, and again, all the schools that I went to uh, growing up were segregated, all black schools, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, and in a way, you know, every time I look back on it, it's like we we didn't know, you know, there were there was all this, uh, I guess, social tension, mm-hmm. you know, and or sometimes, you know, why can't I go here or why can't I go there? And it's like, well, that's just the way it is, mm-hmm. you know. That's, you just can't do that. But... But we didn't, I don't recall that we dwelled on it that much. Sure. Because it was, you know, that was just the time and that's mm-hmm. just the way it was. Mm-hmm. And we had so much in our own neighborhoods, you know, you had your friends. And though, you know, I was talking with a friend of mine the other day and I, I, I think about this every now and it's like, I never, the first time I ever ate at a restaurant was my senior year in high school for my senior prom. We went to this place called Bill Bennett's Steakhouse, wow. which is downtown. But otherwise, you know, we would have uh, these drive-ins, you know, like you see on Happy Days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd go to a place like that mm-hmm. and uh, get a burger or whatever. But in terms of, of a restaurant, sitting down, ordering a meal and all of that, I, I never did that growing up. I oh. never had that kind of opportunity uh, growing up, you know. So that, you know... Uh, it was so much more than, you know, just going, talked about going back for homecoming and how things had changed. Yeah. You know, I mean, it just, again, just the overall um, experience of, uh, of uh, integration, you know, just changed, you know, so much. And it, it really was like night and day. Mm-hmm. You know, all of, one day, well, I can't go over here, and the next day, oh, yeah, you can go there. <laughs> <laughs> they might not want you there, but you can go there. Yeah, so I mean that sort of thing. So yeah, yeah writing this book and researching this book, well, in, in a way, I guess you could say it might have been some kind of catharsis for me or, sure. or whatever. But it, it it brought back a lot of memories for me too. What was your What was your process like? What was the um, <clears throat> time investment, and mm-hmm. then also um, in terms of actually sitting down and putting words. On the uh, paper, but or, you know, was it you know late nights, early mornings, mm-hmm. all all the time on the weekend, all of the above? Talk talk a little uh, bit about your process. Yeah, all of the above. Yeah, I, <laughs> but <coughs> excuse me, I really every now every now and then I have to stop myself and say, well, you wanted to be a writer, well, now you are one. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> and, and you got you got to do whatever that wherever that uh, routine is, but. Like I said, I, I first started thinking about it in 2007 when I went to that uh, uh, PVI, PVILCA banquet in Austin. I started thinking about, oh, yeah, I should I should do this book. But I really didn't get into it 
let's see, it came out in 2017. Mm-hmm. So it was probably three or four years before that that I started to get serious about it. Mm-hmm. And once I actually started to write it, uh, right in the middle of it, uh, I lost it. Uh, my computer ate my homework. Oh, no. So oh my gosh. I... Uh, you know, it was almost due. The manuscript was almost due, and I, I just remember calling my editor and, and literally in tears. You know, I just lost the, the manuscript. The USB ate my homework. You know, and I, oh I always preach backup, 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 and I, I hadn't backed up. Oh no! You know, it's not, I, I didn't have a whole lot, so I literally had to start over right in the middle of the thing. Um, but finally got on. So maybe. Three years mm-hmm. of of sitting down to write, and um, and, uh, and uh, a little bit more than that you know, if you include the research and you know because the thing is there really wasn't a lot out there mm-hmm. you know for me to research because mm-hmm. like I said it was just bits and pieces had been done about uh, black high school uh, football in Texas you know a paragraph here and there. Um, uh, my good friend Jim Dent wrote a great book. The, the kids got it right, you know, talking about uh, the um, the Texas uh, Pennsylvania All Star football game that used to be played every summer, and and uh, how that one year that team at Jerry Levias was probably the best black player in the state, and and uh, uh, Bill Bradley. You know, it was probably the best white player in the state playing together. And now those two guys came together and, mm-hmm. and how it, you know, it kind of helped uh, to move integration along mm-hmm. in, 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 uh, in an athletic sense, sense, I guess. But otherwise, there really wasn't much out there. So I was relying a lot on a lot of fading memories, you know, and a lot of guys who, um, well, I should, I should say, too, that the majority of the guys that I spoke with, some of the, especially the older guys that I spoke with, were just, you know, I would get them on the phone or whatever, turn on my tape recorder and just shut up. Yeah. You know, because as I mentioned, for the most part, none of those guys had ever been in a situation like that to mm-hmm. talk about what they had done and, and uh, uh, you know, talking about, you know, I I didn't know I didn't know what fo- what a football was, you know. And all of a sudden, you know, playing football, you know, mm-hmm. guys who lit- literally were learning the game from reading books, you know. And you know, one of my favorite stories too is is uh, Joe Washington Sr., who grew up in Rosenberg near Houston, and and used to spend his Saturday afternoons at the uh, Black Theater in Houston. Just so he could see the movie, uh, the uh, newsreels, because they would have athletic uh, football highlights, and that's how he started learning the game. Wow. Was watching football highlights, mm-hmm. you know, at the at the theater, you know, and and just those. I mean, th- those kinds of stories, you know, just those guys were so glad to share with me. Mm-hmm. And I would go to the PVIL banquet in the summer, and those guys 
would get up, you know, like I said earlier, they would get up and they would speak, mm-hmm. you know, for a couple of minutes and, you know, thank their families and friends and and uh, praise God. And, and it would just be so moving because, you know, it's like, man, a lot of those guys were getting recognized for the first time mm-hmm. in their lives. Mm-hmm. The first times in their lives. And they had been, they had done so much, you know, all state, all city, you know, and and however they would do it back then for black high school players, you know, maybe a, a black high school All-American or, or, or something like that. And they were just so thankful to me uh, for for writing that book and telling their stories. And one of the guys that I talk with, <clears throat> sorry, he uh, he passed away a couple of days ago, and his name is George Valerie. And he had played at Beaumont, Charlton Pollard. And we had such a great interview. And he would tell me all these funny stories about Bubba Smith and and his dad, um, Willie Ray Smith, you know, who was a head coach. And mm-hmm. those those were the kind of men that I that I talked with. Those were the kind of men. Whose, whose stories I wanted to tell mm-hmm. because they deserved it, they earned it, and nobody had ever done that for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I love about this book, that guys like that got to tell their stories, even, even if it was just a small part of it, they got to tell their stories. I mean, I... I wish I, I could have talked to 500 guys. Maybe I talked to 100. But I think that book is like 250 pages, maybe. I, I, I could have wrote a set of encyclopedias. Yeah. You know, telling all those stories. Mm-hmm. You know, but, and I, I, I posted this to his family. You know, I, I was really honored that I got to include George's story in this book. And he got to see it. Yeah. You know, he yeah. got to see it. Because, you know, I had really wanted to talk to Coach Patterson, you know, but he he passed away, you know, many years ago. But he was the main guy that I wanted to talk with with this book. And, and a guy like Coach Patterson, for all that he did, mm-hmm. there's nothing out there about that guy. Probably the greatest coach in PVIL history. I found one story. And it was in the black newspaper, I think the uh, Forward Times or something like that. Here in Houston, wrote a, wrote a uh, story about him when he retired. But otherwise, for all that that guy did, and to never be acknowledged, it was, it was just a travesty. And that's what Coach Day had said to me. And I think I quoted him saying that in the book, that all of that history for the PVIL, it, it was just a shame that no one had, had ever recorded it like that. Mm-hmm. So for me... This, this book, that's what this book is about, guys like that, um, uh, George Valerie, uh, just Walter Day, 
you know, the the PVIO Coaches Association, all those guys are poor part of that, and giving them some acknowledgement and giving them an opportunity to say who they are, who they are, who they were, and what they're about. Thank you for for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Thank you for being generous with your time. Mm-hmm. Thank you for writing the book. <laughs> it is a, it really is an incredible book. Thank you. I I enjoyed reading it. Um, thank you for thank you for telling that story about George Valerie. Mm-hmm. I, I think that um, that's important to to talk about that. But then also, I mean, it, it humanizes the people in the book because Definitely. when people pick up this book <clears throat> and they read about it. And you do an amazing job of, of, of giving giving character to them and giving context to them. But for someone who still maybe hasn't, you know, had a chance to meet those people, there's still to them a character in the book. And so by you talking about these guys and talking about your time with them, I think adds even more to that. Yeah, thank you. I and I'm um, thinking of these stories that George had told me. <laughs> and I will share I'll share one, Please one, do. one with you real quick. He, you know, um, uh, a lot of these, a lot of your listeners might remember a player named Ernie Ladd. Uh, Ernie went to Orange, uh, went to Wallace High School in Orange, Texas, and Ernie had this reputation for being a big eater. And Ernie was one of the first big guys to come out of Grambling. You know, three hundred pounds. Yeah. You know, six seven, six eight. I mean, Ernie was this huge kid uh, growing <laughs> up, and so uh, Willie Ray. Willie Ray Smith, uh, Boa Smith's dad, was like this this coach, uh, this coach at uh, at Charlton Pollard, and but he started his career at at uh, Wallace High School, in uh, in Orange, Texas, and he gets crossways with the principal. The last that the people at at uh, Wallace High School saw of Willie Ray Smith. <laughs> Was being carried out of the high school on on uh, Ernie Ladd's shoulders. Oh my gosh! <laughs> uh, to keep the coach from punching out the principal. <laughs> so, but Willie Ray, uh, Coach Willie Ray Smith, was a real character, you know. And I and, and I, I talk about him a, a, a bit in the book mm-hmm. in the book too. But that was one of my favorite stories as well. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you for for taking the time. Thank you for joining mm-hmm. the podcast. Definitely, uh, this has been. Uh, I hope you have had as half as much fun as I have uh, doing this. I really enjoy you sitting down and talking about the book. Um, thank you so much for uh, for doing that. And I feel that we might have another podcast coming up uh, based on your work at the uh, Institute for Preservation of History and okay. Culture, because you mentioned you know the five hundred years mm-hmm. of, of history. Sure. Uh, and and me being you know a history nerd and maybe in, and maybe none of our listeners are, are interested in this, but I'm interested in it. Okay. Uh, the 500 years of history. I'm a I'm a history guy. I I'm so so um, just enthralled by why things occurred, mm-hmm. how how they came about, and then also you know how how they're coming forward. You know okay. how we can learn from that. So we might we might have to uh, might have to sit down again. Yeah, and then we're gonna do a third one on cheesecakes. Yes. So. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. For 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 anyone who's listening, Michael is a, is an amazing uh, uh, dessert cheesecake, chef. Uh, yeah. yeah, dessert chef. Yeah, yeah, dessert chef. I've I've uh, had the privilege of having some of your cheesecakes before. Uh, they're amazing. 
Yeah. I write and I bake. There you That's go. That's what I do. Awesome. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much. This is real fun. Thank you, Andy, for having me. I appreciate it. Hey guys, thank you for listening. One more thing before you go. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find more episodes in our archives at eversoncooper.com slash podcast. You can also find all past episodes on iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. Please don't forget to send us a review and a rating. We are not trying to feed our ego. Just ratings and reviews help us reach more listeners that could benefit from what our guests have shared. And our guests then benefit more uh, from being on the podcast. So rate and review us on iTunes, podcast app, and all those other platforms I mentioned. Speaking of platforms, we would love it if you shared the Everson Cooper podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, whatever social media you use. Lastly, if you want to receive a fresh new Everson Cooper podcast episode every Wednesday, be sure to subscribe and you will get the latest episode sent right to you automatically. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.